this morning, um, it's not really a, 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 a preaching message. Uh, this is more of, of a teaching thing. Um, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to take a look. We're going to take a look at some verses. We're going to be over in the book of Leviticus. It's a very easy book to find. You just go over there and find Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Boom, you're right there. We're going to look at a bunch of references. Now, 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 don't let that scare you. There's a bunch of references. Uh, if you need, uh, uh, you know, uh, as we go through these, um, because again, this isn't going to be a very quote unquote deep dive study in this. Uh, it is an overview, uh, showing you a principle. And that's the, the intent of what I'm trying to show here, um, this morning. But, uh, if you miss uh, a reference, uh, come see me afterwards. Uh, I'll make sure that you get it. Um, and, uh, I want to make sure that uh, people understand this concept because it's, it's an important concept, uh, that we understand in scripture. But before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. We'll get started this uh, morning. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I just come to you again, uh, just desiring, um, your wisdom, desiring, um, your strength this morning. And Lord, I just desire that you would do a work in all of us as we look to your word. And Lord, while this may not be a convicting message per se, it is one that clearly exemplifies and shows uh, the work that you've performed for us, your grace, and how you've extended it to everybody here in this world. And Lord, I just thank you for the time and the, the, uh, the, 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 the preaching, if you will, of these things in your word that show us clearly your intent from the very beginning. And Lord, again, I just thank you that you would preserve that for us, that we could come here today and just enjoy and be uplifted by your word, knowing that your promises ring true, that you are not a man that you would lie, but Lord, you are one that gives us clear guidance and direction in this life, knowing how to live it, knowing how to think, knowing what to do. And Lord, that we can just trust you, that every sure word of prophecy will be fulfilled in good time. I thank you again for all that you've done for us. And this I ask and pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. In Leviticus chapter 23, there, there is a passage here. This, uh, this is an entire chapter. We're not going to go through the entire chapter. We're going to look at certain parts of it, okay? Uh, we're not going to go into great detail of every last one of these feasts. But uh, in this chapter, the Lord has instituted seven feasts for the nation of Israel. Now, this is kind of interesting uh, when we think about it. Uh, what is today? Today is September 25th. Anybody happen to know what day it is? Sunday. Sunday. It's uh, actually the new moon, which means it's Rosh Hashanah. Which means that shortly after that comes the Day of Atonement. Right? But interestingly enough, if you ever go back and you start looking at those things that God has put in Scripture, there is a pattern that is there. Now, I want you to keep your finger in Luke, or excuse me, not Luke, but Leviticus chapter 23, and I want you to take a look at two other passages. Go over to the book of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 in the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 2, Here's something that was revealed. It wasn't revealed initially to the nation of Israel. They didn't get it till much later. Some people still to this day don't get it, but, you know, the nation of Israel uh, got this principle a little bit later on. It was a mystery and some of the things that the Lord concealed from them. 
um, but shows them very clearly that these things are about Jesus Christ. Everything of the law points to Jesus Christ. All the sacrifices, all the instruments in the temple and the tabernacle, the, the, the clothes of the high priest, all of it pointed to Christ. And what we find here in, in Colossians chapter 2 and in verse 17, he says, uh, let's back up to verse 16 here. He says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of uh, the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So here he's talking about the shadow, all those things that were back there with all the dietary restrictions and all the things that we find with the Sabbaths and the feasts. And there's more than one Sabbath, by the way. That's an important thing to remember. There's more than just one Sabbath that people talk about which starts on Friday and goes into to, to um, Saturday morning and so on and so forth. It, there's, there's much more to it than that. There's a lot of other Sabbaths that are out there. There's certain days that were, uh, uh, if you will, set aside for Sabbaths. Um, so we see that there's multiple of them. And here he is talking about that. He's talking about holy days. And some people decided that they still wanted to retain some of those things of the Jewish uh, uh, um, uh, law and still celebrate those things such as Passover or Day of Atonement and things of that nature. And, and Paul's making it clear. He's like, you know, don't need to go judge them on that. But the main thing that we understand is, is that it's always been a shadow, if you will, a picture of what's going to happen. And what we find is we find in this passage in Leviticus chapter 23, those seven feasts outline not only Jesus Christ, but a lot of the things of this, this world and some of the timeline that's found therein. Now, take a look over at the book of Hebrews, a couple of uh, books over. If you turn over towards the back of your Bible in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 1, <coughs> It says, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continue to make the comers thereunto perfect. Now we've been talking about perfect uh, when we're on Wednesday night and what that means and, and the God's description of it, and specifically in the commandment when he says, be ye perfect. And everybody says, oh, that's impossible. But we've talked about that, that God makes it possible. And it's through Jesus Christ and him alone. But here he's talking about the, the law. He's saying the law was a shadow of these things. Meaning that in typology, it demonstrated and showed something. So here we are, and, and, and we're, we're, we just mentioned that it's Rosh Hashanah today. And, and, and interestingly enough, that is dealing with the feasts of trumpets. It has to deal with trumpets. Now I'll say this about trumpets. You gotta be careful about trumpets in the Bible. If you don't get, if you don't have your trumpets matched up, you're gonna be all over the board, okay? But again, we're not gonna go into very much detail about that. This is an overview. This can kind of maybe whet your appetite to start looking into things of, uh, of what's going on. But I wanna make it very clear here. The purpose behind this is to demonstrate and show the picture of Jesus Christ that he gave the Old Testament uh, uh, um, Hebrew, he gave them very something specific to demonstrate and show that when Christ came, it was the Messiah. He was that that Messiah that they'd been expecting, that, that he is the Christ. 
These are all these things that are intended to show that and demonstrate that. Now, if we go back over there to Leviticus chapter 23, we're going to be in our main text, Leviticus chapter 23. There's something here I want us to see here um, in the first part uh, uh, of uh, Leviticus chapter 23. It says in verse 4, it says, These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which ye, also, uh, which ye shall proclaim in their season. So he, he starts off and he says, look, I want you to understand, these are my feasts. God says they're my feasts. They're, they're, they're not for the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has a tendency to like to take things from God, just like every Christian likes to take things from God sometimes too. We want to take his vengeance. That's not ours. Vengeance is his, saith the Lord. He will repay. Not us. It's not our responsibility. Praise the Lord for that. Because I don't think we would have the right judgment to be able to do those things. But these are God's. These belong to the Lord. And the reason is, is because it demonstrates who the Lord is. It demonstrates him as Christ, you know, Jesus here in this, uh, you know, coming to this earth. And we find this here in this first part. He talks about these and he says in the uh, in verse 5, he says, In the fourth day of the first month, even uh, at even, is the Lord's Passover. Now, we know that the Passover is something that happens in spring. The first four that we see here are spring feasts. The last ones that we see are fall feasts. And there's a gap in between. That's uh, interesting when we start thinking about that. But we've got the first four that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Passover, starting it off. We're going to talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're going to talk about the first fruits. We're going to talk about Pentecost. There will be that gap. We move into fall, then we start talking about trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are the seven feasts that we see. Those seven feasts reveal God's plan. The very first thing that we see here with Passover that we know happens over there in Exodus chapter 12, and we go through and we understand that that was the last of those ten plagues that came to the uh, the nation of Egypt that was uh, prompting them to uh, let the children of Israel go and uh, to basically spoil Egypt and, and take all of their riches and everything that they had gained to ta- have the Israelites take those things away from them. And again, the e- Egypt being a type of the world and they're coming out of it. But what we find there is during that Passover feast, or excuse me, that Passover that happened, the very first one, there was supposed to be a lamb that was slain. Now, the book of Revelation makes that very clear that there is a lamb that was slain. He makes it very clear that that lamb is Jesus Christ. John the Baptist makes that declaration in John chapter 1. Behold, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And not just the Jew, but the world. Aren't you glad he came to more than just the Hebrew? And he included us. Praise God. That that whosoever will may come, that whosoever included me, uh, those those things that we we sing about, that we think on, that that John three sixteen for whosoever that that means me, that means us, that means unsaved, unregenerate Gentiles, right? Praise God for that. It's always been His plan, but we find that that is a is a is a passage of scripture over there in Exodus chapter 12 that as we go through reveals Jesus Christ in his crucifixion. The very first feast that we see is Jesus Christ memorialized, if you will, 
in that event, the Passover. And we find that happening in his crucifixion. Turn over to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And in verse 17... says, now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples uh, um, uh, came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And Jesus said, And go into the, uh, to the city to such a man, and say unto him, The Master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. So right there, you find that at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it was the time of the Passover. It was the time of the Passover, which is why they had to get him off the cross when they they uh, had put him up there. They didn't want him up there during that Sabbath. They wanted to make sure he was down for that. And here he is. It's right around that time. It said the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is extended a few more days than just the one day of the Passover. But that one day of the Passover represents Jesus Christ crucified. It represents Jesus Christ crucified. Turn over to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. John chapter 18, I want us to take a look at verse 28. John 18, 28. It says, Then they led Jesus from... Uh, Caiaphas under the hall of judgment. It was early and they had themselves went not into the judgment hall lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So we see very clearly it's right around that time. It's right around the time they wanted to make sure that they were still holy for the Passover as they're crucifying Jesus Christ. How sad that is. How absolutely, if you will, uh, um, just horrific to think about that. But I, I dare say that many times people will do the same thing. People will do the same thing. They'll come to church with a, you know, with, with a bunch of sin in their lives that they're unwilling to be repentant of. People will try to serve the Lord with a, a bunch of things that are, are are preventing them from giving themselves wholly unto Jesus Christ. And this is the same thing with the nation of Israel. Same thing with the nation of Israel. Turn over to First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter five. First Corinthians chapter five. First Corinthians chapter five and in verse seven. Here we see in verse seven, he says, purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Now here's the important thing for us to understand. Here he is talking about purging out sin. Leaven is sometimes a type of sin in Scripture. And here he is talking about getting sin out of a person's life. And why is that? For the purpose of pleasing Christ. For the purpose of pleasing Christ. Not as we're talking about on Wednesday in some sort of uh, social, uh, societal, humanistic form to, you know, better ourselves or anything of that nature, but, but really to please the one that saved us, the one that loved us, the one that died on that cross for us, the one that is our Passover. So that we, we would have forgiveness of sins. That was the purpose behind it because that Passover represented that death would pass over that person that had put the blood on the doorposts. 
the blood that was on the top of the doorpost and one on each side. That represented the cross. And right there we see a picture in this feast of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. When we go over to the next feast, back over in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Some of you are probably thinking that you're just going back to college because you're flipping back and forth and things of that nature. Just just hang on. Like I said, you know, there isn't going to be a test afterwards. There will be a quiz, and it is responsible for 80% of your grade, though. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 23, and in verse 6, it says, And on the 15th day of the same month, as that Passover that was in the first verse, in, or excuse me, in verse 5, the same month is the feast of the unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And he goes through the process of what they're supposed to do, and and uh, he makes it clear that there's no servile work to be done therein. In verse seven, talking about as it as a Sabbath on that first day, and then also on the seventh day. So he he makes it very clear here that this is this feast of unleavened bread. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus Christ often referred to himself as what? The bread of life. The bread of life. Turn over to the book of John, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And the purpose of showing all of this is that Jesus Christ is revealed in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is revealed in the Old Testament. Somebody that is ignorant of what the Bible is about will try to say that it is a, a, a bunch of collection of things put together by man. It's impossible to put together this book that way over the span of years with that many people penning it. It's just, it's just impossible. The statistical probabilities defy. You have greater, uh, greater opportunity and, if you will, chance to go win, you know, one of those billion dollar lotteries. I still have a hard time understanding how we got to a billion dollars in the lottery, but whatever. But in John chapter 6, here it reveals a little bit more in verse 40, uh, um, uh, uh, verse, uh, ooh, where am I? All right, got it, right here. Verse 47, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Verse 48, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. Look at this. Look at what he says here in verse five, uh, 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus Christ died on the cross, the Passover representing the, the, the crucifixion. We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread representing that burial, that body. That body placed in the tomb, that body uh, that was there that was without sin, unleavened. That body that was there that was given for us, took our punishment upon that cross, took our punishment in that tomb, took our punishment in hell, did those things for us because he's demonstrating his love according to Romans chapter 5 verse 18, John chapter 3 verse 16. He's showing that to us. He's giving us a clear picture. God is not an uncaring God. God is not is not a, a discompassionate towards people. 
Commonly, you see him, and when you would see the crowds, he would look on them and have compassion upon them. Why? Because they were lost. They were lost. Same way we need to view people. They're lost. They need a Savior. They need a Savior. And here he is giving himself, and as he says, he's giving that body for them. Giving that body. That blood that was shed on the cross and that body that we, you know, talk about when we have the Lord's Supper very clearly represents what Christ did for us. So that we could be brought together, both Jew and Gentile, bonded free, barbarian, Scythian, male, female, makes no difference, brought together in the body of Christ as one unified together. That's the purpose. And we find here that this is representing that. This is representing this. This uh, feast of unleavened bread is 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 clear, uh, clearly demonstrating this. Turn over to the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter five. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5, he says in verse 1, Be therefore uh, followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a, sweet, and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. You go back over there in Leviticus chapter 23, and you read more about that uh, unleavened bread. There was a sacrifice that was being made. There was a sacrifice. There was an offering that was there. Now, that sacrifice and offering was he gave his flesh for us. For us. Go back over there to Leviticus and take a look at uh, chapter 23 again. And let's take a look at the next one there that we find in verse uh, uh, verse 9. <clears throat> it says in verse 9, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf, of the first fruits of your harvest under the priest. The first things that they do when they go in and they start reaping the benefits of the land that the Lord has given them, God is saying, I want you to bring an offering of first fruits. Every spring, you're going to bring the first of that harvest. And that harvest continues all the way to the fall. The very first things that come about, the very first things that are are, are being produced, he says, I want you to, to bring that. To bring that. And the reason being is because it demonstrates, number one, a thankfulness. Here we are rapidly approaching Thanksgiving. We come with Thanksgiving, and again, that day is meant and intended, as many people have absolutely no idea why it was founded, but it was meant as to give it a day of thanks, if you will, to God. To be thankful to God for what was here in this country. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about kind of puts a whole different perspective on that day. It's not a day to watch football and eat turkey. It's a day to sit down and say, God, thank you. Which we should have in our hearts every day. Every day, thank you, God, for saving my soul. Thank you, God, for forgiving my sins. Thank you, God, for giving me the strength and giving me uh, uh, your power to get through the day. God, thank you. But this idea and this concept of first fruits is something here that we see. He's saying, I want you to bring it. 
And then as we go through this all the way down to verse 14, there's all these things that are being done as, as offerings unto the Lord, uh, these lambs that we see that are, are being given. This is talking about the resurrection. The first fruits is talking about the resurrection. Go over to the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's go back to the New Testament again. Here we are seeing these parallels in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you ever want a clear presentation of what the gospel is, you'll find it in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, you find in verse 3, it says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scripture, was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen also of me, as of one born out of due time. There's, there's the gospel presentation for you, right there. Death, burial, resurrection, and the demonstration of who he is. And one thing that we find in this passage is if we go over to verse uh, 20 of this same passage in in chapter uh, 15, it says there, But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And here he is talking about that very first fruit. He is that first fruit. He is the one that has raised from the dead for, if you will, our resurrection. We, we all anxiously wait the resurrection of this body. And what I mean by that is getting a glorified new body, right? We, 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 I, I, everything changed. Everything changed. Praise the Lord for that. All those things that have happened, Corrected. Praise God. <laughs> those things that have happened in our lives, those things that have uh, occurred, those are all things that, that, you know, we look forward to. But none of that would be possible. No home in heaven would be possible if Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead. The power of his resurrection, as Paul talks about it. And there's power behind it. Some people only talk about the death of Christ. But he, is, he says here, but now Christ has risen from the dead. If he was dead and buried in the tomb still, we would not have any hope. But we have hope now because of the resurrection that is here. Turn over the book of James. Again, towards the last part of the book of the, uh, of the Bible, towards uh, James, in James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, in verse 18, it says, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, talking about Jesus Christ, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Those that initially began, those that started. And we find this, that this occurred with the resurrection. There was that, and then there was those that uh, immediately followed, and then shortly after that, you saw a, a great number of people at Pentecost coming to Christ. And then you saw it began to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and then it was individuals one-on-one. A lot of people are trying to go back to Pentecost, and they think that they want to get some you know, great crowd of 2,000 people getting saved at one time, or 5,000 people getting saved at one time. You realize that's still not the greatest revival that ever took place in Scripture? Jonah. 
120,000 people get right and repent, and God spares them. Oh, now there's a revival. How come nobody wants to go back to, 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 to Nineveh? Because it involves a ride in a whale, that's why. <laughs> nobody wants that exposed. No, 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 I'm okay with Pentecost. A few thousand, that's fine. 120, uh, a whale, nah, man, no thanks. They skipped that. But what we find is that we see Pentecost also being mentioned back over there. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. In the fourth of these spring feasts that we see, and this is the succession of them, we see that the promise that God made, that Jesus Christ made, was that the Holy Ghost would come, the Holy Spirit. And we find in Pentecost here in verse 15, and it says, And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you, sh- uh, that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall ye number fifty days, and ye shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. Hence the word Pentecost, representing fifty. That's where that word comes from, these fifty days. This feast is representative of what happened over in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, you go over there and what do you find? You find that Jesus Christ uh, had promised them the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost comes and demonstrates his power and who he is and what's going on. And again, as he is God himself, the, the, the Holy, the Holy Ghost, we see very clearly that there's that demonstration that was promised. And it says there in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, it says in verse uh, 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, there were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and filled the house where uh, they were sitting, and they appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. That is not baptism by fire. Just want to make sure we understand that. That's not what this is talking about. That's something totally different. And it says in verse 4, and it says, And they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There he is clearly demonstrating. And what, what are these tongues? What happens here? There they are speaking in Hebrew, and the guy that's over there that uh, only understands Arabic, hears what they're saying in Hebrew, he see, hears it in Arabic. The guy that's over there that's uh, from uh, from Persia, he hears it in Farsi. That's where the Medes are. And he mentions over there in verse 9. All these other individuals that, that, that are throughout there, the Egyptians, they hear it. The the, the, the ones from, from Libya. you got to remember, all of those Arabic dialects all have a different... They're all different. You can take Arabic in general, but you're not going to understand every single dialect. Because what they say in Egypt isn't the same thing that they say in Iraq or the same thing that they say in, in uh, Saudi Arabia or the same thing that they say in Libya. They're all different. That's why it's a very difficult language to master. But what we find very clearly is God gave them utterance to speak and God is showing and demonstrating who he is and showing what's going on and the Holy Ghost comes upon them. Spirit gives them utterance to speak. This is exactly what Jesus Christ promised. Turn over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. 
Take a look at verse 26. But the comforter. I love that. I, I, I just want to pause here because this is, this is a soapbox that I always love to talk about. There is no greater comforter than that which comes from the Holy Spirit. You can come alongside and you can comfort somebody and you can comfort them in the flesh, but there is no greater comfort than those that are comforted by the Holy Spirit of God, that have the peace that passeth all understanding because they have a sure hope in Jesus Christ and they have a hope in his word. Because the world, the world cannot offer hope the way that God offers hope. Nobody can offer that. And here he is, and he knows exactly what the disciples are going to need. Right after the crucifixion, right after the burial, they are all going to be very despondent. They're all going to be depressed. They're all going to be scared. They're all going to be, you know, frightened. And what do they need? They need a comforter. They need a comforter. Jesus Christ was the first comforter. Here he is given the second comforter, the Holy Ghost. And he says here, uh, uh, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and will bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, here he is making it very clear that this is what was going to happen. Go over to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 and in verse 11, just to, uh, to, to, to see that, even, even John the Baptist understood this. John the Baptist chapter 3, verse 11, and here he is preaching one of his sermons. And he says in verse 1, or excuse me, in verse 11, he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoe I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now again, remember there's seven different baptisms in Scripture. And the one that he was talking about with water in the first part isn't the one that he's talking about in the other two. Just because you hear see the word baptized doesn't mean somebody got wet. The nation of Israel was baptized in the Red Sea and they didn't get wet at all. They walked through on dry land. And sometimes you're baptized into something and you're never taken out. You're baptized into Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad he didn't take you out? You're still in him, right? That was weak. (laughs) You're still in him, right? There you go. Praise God, you can't get out no matter what. And I tell you, it's one of the greatest things to understand and to begin to realize. When we see what God is doing here. Here he is, he's telling them specifically what he's going to do to, for the nation of Israel. And so the first of the, uh, first four of these, uh, these feasts that we see, these, of these seven, the first four represent the Passover, unleavened bread, the first fruits, and Pentecost. And what do we find? We find it the crucifixion, we find it the burial, we find it the resurrection, and we find it the promise and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost upon them. And then there's a pause. There's a pause. Now it's interesting to note that those monthly pauses, those first few, they all kind of happen in rapid succession, but that pause that's right there is very important for us to understand because there was a mystery. There's always been a mystery. That body of Christ was a mystery to the to, to the Jew. He had no comprehension of it. He had no idea that this was going to happen. 
He had no idea that, that he, that the way that it was going to be presented. How do we know that? Because you got Peter going over there, and in, in chapter 10, Peter's told to go to Cornelius, who's a Gentile, and Peter's having an issue with that. He's like, wait a second. Me? A Jew to a Gentile? He even tells Cornelius, I'm not supposed to be here. These Jews that are with me, we're not supposed to be here. We're going to get in trouble talking to you. And he did, because right in chapter 11, what did they do? They called him and they said, Peter, can you explain to us what you just did? And he, he told them. And they realized it was of God. They realized it was of God. God was offering salvation under the Gentiles. Yeah, praise God for that. Praise God for that. Because again, if he only offered it to the Jew, man, we'd be in deep trouble, wouldn't we? We'd be on the road to hell so fast it would be, it'd be unbelievable. But we find here very clearly that those first four and then that pause that happens, we find the church, the body of Christ. And then comes the final three feasts that again are represented in who Jesus Christ is. And it has a lot to do with his second coming. The first were feasts that were fulfilled under Christ's first coming to here on earth. And they were fulfilled, if you will, in a priestly role with the anointing, all the way to the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the Passover that was given, all of these things that we find there that was fulfilled in his priestly role. And then he comes and he comes back as a king. Royalty. Royalty. There's been a huge transfer of power over in England. I should say pseudo power because he really has no power. And it's absolutely disturbing that he's got the title of defender of the faith. And I'm just like, yeah, he ain't going to do that. He's going to fail in that. He's going to fail in that. He already started to fail because of some of the compromises. But one of the things that we find is we find that the real king, the king of this earth, is coming back. It's coming back. The first thing that we see, if you go over to Leviticus again, in Leviticus, and this is where we are right now today, at this exact time, we are talking about the Feast of the Trumpet. We are in this era that, or excuse me, the specific time of the Feast of the Trumpet. Now, it's interesting to note that all those spring feasts happened on those specific days. Jesus Christ was crucified on the Passover. There was the burial process. There was the resurrection. All of those things, Pentecost, on they, they, they were all happening around that time. Now, I don't want somebody to go run and say, oh, Ken Stewart said that he's coming back today or tomorrow. <laughs> Praise God if he does. Yeah. It'll only be because a fool opened his mouth and spoke that it happened. It wasn't because of anything that I'm not prophesying that. But is it, it's, it's, it's important to note that it happens around that, you know, this time frame. Now, I'm not saying, you know, specifically in September or October or whenever. And I'm saying this is the pattern that we see in Scripture. I'm not a date setter. I will never set a date. Because no man knoweth the date nor the hour. So, the day nor the hour. So, I, I'm not going to go around doing that. But I do know this, that we can definitely pay attention to the signs and the seasons and we can look around this world and we can say, uh, it looks like we're heading right towards the days of Noah. We're not there yet. Not there yet. Getting close. Getting really close. 
But what we find in this Feast of the Trumpet is we find a picture of the rapture. God calling up his, his own. In Leviticus chapter 23, and in verse uh, 23, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speaking unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial, a blowing of trumpets, a holy convoca- a convocation. This Feast of the Trumpets was held as a memorial to recognize what God has been doing, what God has done. During that period of time, that pause, that break, it was a time to come back and, if you will, again, refresh and begin and then begin, you know, to, to, to kind of think about what God is doing. And we find this very clear as a picture of the rapture. Go over to the first, uh, first Thessalonians, first Thessalonians chapter four. This is why you have to be careful about your trumpets. You start trying to match up trumpets with only specific trumpets that are found in uh, the book of Revelation, you're going to get Kind of messed up. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and in verse 13, he says, But I would not have you be ignorant, to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. He's talking about those that have passed away. That you sorrow not, even though as others which have no hope. Now one thing that we know is that if you are to die here, and you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are present with him. Your body isn't. Your body is what he refers to as asleep. But you're with him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know that for a fact. There is no soul sleep going on here. That being said, one thing that is very clear is that the people that have no hope, they do not have a home in heaven, they do not have forgiveness of sins, they have no hope. They have no hope. They're scared of death. They're scared of what lies on the other side. I don't particularly want to die. I mean, I, I remember just recently, you know, last month, as I was getting wheeled over to the, to the surgical OR, I'm sitting there, or I'm not sitting there, I'm laying there, and I'm like, Lord, I might be seeing you in a few minutes. Just trust. Just trust. And then I had I had a dream. I couldn't even tell you what the dream was about. It was under some sort of chemical-induced hallucination. <laughs> I don't know. It was under under all those those things that they were pumping into you. I remember laying there and they're putting the mask on me and they're like, "Okay, just you know, take a big deep breath." And I'm like, "When is this <laughs> gone?" Next thing I know is what happens. I wake up. Well, I definitely wasn't in heaven. <laughs> but here he is talking about this, and he says that he doesn't want them to be ignorant. He says, I want you guys to have hope, because here's where we look at this. It says in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen for that. And I'll tell you this, it's interesting to note that a lot of people also, when they start trying to figure out these things, 
They get the day of the Lord messed up. Day of the Lord isn't just one day. It extends over a period of time. It includes the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Study that out from Scripture, and you'll see that it includes these things. Over in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, I want to make mention of this passage as well. 1 Corinthians 15, and in verse... Verse 50, it says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. This is why we have to be changed. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trump, uh, trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So we can see very clearly here another picture of what's going on at this Feast of Trumpets. Now, this includes the nation of Israel, too, because they are included in the body of Christ. Are they not? According to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, didn't he bring the two together to become one? One body? Jew and Gentile? All under the name of Jesus Christ. All because of the shed blood. All because of the power of his resurrection. Coming together. But then we have this Day of Atonement. And this Day of Atonement, there's a lot of affliction. Go back over there to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. And in verse 26, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And here they are. What are they doing? They're being afflicted. In verse 29, it says, For whatsoever soul it shall be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. They're purposely supposed to afflict themselves. When's the last time you decided, I want to make my life miserable? And you signed up for it. Most of the time we do that unwillingly and unwittingly. But here they are required to do that. You know, the nation of Israel has got to go through a bit of a purging. He's got to get rid of those dead branches. He's got to get rid of the unfruitfulness. He's got to get them back to the point of whether they're repentant. Time of Jacob's trouble and Rachel's sorrow is what it's called. And we find this very clear that it comes and it comes to an end with Christ coming back. That second coming. Turn over to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> In verse 29, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the earth shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, for they shall see the Son of Man coming in uh, in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall uh, send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. And here he is talking about this very specifically 
what he's going to do in the millennial reign. The nation of Israel becomes the chief superpower of the world. That small little country, which is just a postage stamp of what its inheritance really is. Because God promised them the world. And when he comes and he rules and reigns, he will be governing. Revelation chapter 19 covers how he comes back. And how he comes back is very, very different than when he came the first time. He came as a babe. He came in the flesh. And here he comes, not as a servant, not as a priest, but as a king, with the word of God coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword, and the armies that are trying to keep him off, they're decimated. That day of atonement is necessary for the nation of Israel. This is to be fulfilled. And then we have the Feast of the Tabernacles. Back over there in Leviticus chapter 23. Bear with me just a couple more minutes. We're almost done. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 33. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of the Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. And here we've got this feast. Here we have this booth, and they're supposed to go back and remember what God has been doing, what God has done with them, what God is going to be doing for them. And if there isn't a greater time where Jesus Christ comes and rules and reigns in such a way, it is in this millennial reign of Jesus Christ, here he is among men, these tabernacles of flesh, these things that we have, this body, the one that he had, that he gave for us. And he covers that over there in John chapter 14, where he begins to say, I go to prepare a place for you, but he says he will come again. He will come again in John chapter 14. And we see that in in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, we see that establishment of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Crime will plummet. There won't be issues like what we see today. Politicians bickering back and forth about about what is doing, doing what is right and so on and so forth. God's going to instruct them. This is what you're going to do. You don't do what's right. Guess what's going to happen? There's immediate consequences. We all look forward to that day. We all look forward to that day. But what we find with these seven feasts is we find that this is a fulfillment of what he called himself in Mark chapter 2, the Lord of the Sabbath. These Sabbaths that are covered here, these days of holy convocation, these days that have been set aside are all to be used of God and used by Christ and to demonstrate who he is. And while we wait for those other three to be fulfilled, we've seen very clearly those first four were fulfilled in what he did for us here. And we wait for the day to be called up. We wait for the day to meet him in the air. We wait for the day to get that glorified body. We wait for all those things. And I want us to understand that the the, the things that were written here in the book of Leviticus were written several hundred, several hundred years before all those things were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
there was time. The last three that we see, we need to understand it's in God's time. It's in God's time. And the purpose behind this is I want us to realize that today, Feast of the Trumpets, there's hope. That we can comfort one another with these words. Why is that? If he's fulfilled the first four, he will fulfill the last three. Without a doubt, it's not a lie. It will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, those last three can be really scary if you're not trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you're here today and you don't even know what that means, let me tell you. God came in the first, and what did he do? He came as an infant born in his flesh. He was sinless, perfect, and pure. And he died on the cross for the payment for my sin, for your sin, for the sin of every person in the world. The billions that are on here and the billions that have already lived. The sin of the entire world was laid upon him on that cross. And he shed his blood to pay for that sin. He died to pay for that sin. But he rose again to give us that eternal life and that hope that is found in him. And the Bible says, whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's simple. There's no name under heaven save Jesus Christ by which we must be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's simple. That's simple. I have to give to the church? No. Do I have to do this? No. Do I have to be good first before I can go? No. Because all that goodness is found in Christ. Goodness comes afterwards after you're yielded according to what we were talking about this morning. All that comes afterwards. But the greatest good that ever happened to us was the fact that God would give himself for my sin, his creation. He would die for me. And I look forward to that hope. And I was thinking about it as I was looking at these things, and there's a lot of stuff in prophecy, and people are talking about red heifers, and people are talking about nation of Israel, and people are talking about end of the world, which was supposed to happen yesterday, um, and all this stuff that's going on, and people are like, you know... I'll I'll tell you this. I don't get worked up by that. You know what I get worked up by? I know his promise is true. I know he didn't lie to me. I know I have a, a home in heaven with him. I know he's living in me right now. I know because 1 John 5 says he wrote these things so that we would know that we would know that we have eternal life given to us. You trust in Him this morning? If you are, you got great hope. Those seven, those seven things that reveal Christ, look, this, this isn't a novel. This isn't a history book. You read it that way, you're only going to get that much of what God's telling us. You go back through and you start looking at Leviticus. You might look at Leviticus chapter 23 a little bit different now. 
You might go through the Old Testament and go, hey, I'm going to read Leviticus again, said no one. <laughs> and, and, and try to get in there and find some things. I encourage you to do it. You'll start seeing Christ revealed over and over and over and over and over again. Who he is and what he did. Tell you, again, it's not a real convicting message. This is just a little bit of teaching. Thought it very, very apropos for the day that it is. But just something to kind of what our appetite a little bit about who God is, what he has for us in this book, and how, how we need to be digging to know more about him, grow in that knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's stand for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. I thank you again, Lord, for what you've given to us in your book. And Lord, I just pray that as we continue to think on these things, and Lord, uh, maybe it sparks some meditation, maybe it sparks an interest. Lord, I pray that we would just have that desire to see you in Scripture, and Lord, your Holy Spirit, to continue to reveal it. And Lord, again, I just thank you for these folks that are here this this morning. Lord, here we are, just awaiting your return. And Lord, it may be any day, it may be any hour. But regardless, Lord, I pray that we're ready. That we're ready, that our heart, Lord, has been cleansed by your precious blood. That we have that home in heaven with you. That regardless of whether you you wait a little bit longer, and we pass away here, or whether we're caught up in the air, Lord, we know that we shall forever be with you. And I thank you for that hope. And these things I ask and pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.